Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, Dice's podcast where we dig into the topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski. I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including taking the temperature of the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technology professionals in a historically tight market, and much more. Our latest Tech Connects guest is Tigran Sloyan, who's the co-founder and CEO of CodeSignal, a startup that's trying to improve technical hiring at every stage of the process. CodeSignal's products aim to present candidates with questions relevant to real-world scenarios and hiring managers with questions supported by research. He also wrote a recent piece for Fast Company about the need to apply AI to training and education. I wanted to talk to Tigran about a number of topics, from training and technical interviews to how the rise of AI will impact tech careers. So let's listen in. So Tigran, thank you for being on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Um, before I hit record just now, we were chatting about a little bit about generative AI and also the piece you just had in Fast Company advocating for the use of AI in the context of learning and training. But before we get into all of that, um, I wanted to sort of just have you break down for the audience who might not be aware of um, everything that you're doing and Code Signal and so on. Just you know, what is Code Signal? What are you doing? And just you know, and and, and how is that going to impact everybody? So, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Nick. I'm excited to talk about this because, as you can imagine, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, look, what we're doing with CodeSignal, the, our mission has always been to you know, discover and develop the skills that will shape the future. Uh, I think there is two pieces to this idea, right? One is the very human side of it. Uh, humans have so much potential, and most humans never actually get the opportunity the chance to grow into their full potential. And growing into your full potential has both just general happiness concept to it in terms of like self-actualization. Like one of the top psychologists identified long time ago in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That self-actualization is the highest form of happiness that we humans tend to pursue. And when you don't live up to your full potential, it's really hard to do that. But then, of course, there is economic implications, too, where uh, not having the chance and having the education system, the recruitment system and the entire society fail you in a way where, you know, even when you're young, you keep hearing people talk about talent being a gift. And it's such a misconception. Right. And if you keep telling a kid that a talent is a gift, they're going to believe it. And at some point, someone's going to tell them that they're just not gifted. And they're going to take that in and believe that. So it starts that early and it just keeps on going, right? So this idea that like, what if, you know, we could approach this problem from uh, a global standpoint? How do we help to discover and develop those skills that will shape the future future of humanity and future of individuals at the same time? Uh, and we started from assessment side because early on in the company's journey, I wanted to take on the world and do the whole thing at once very quickly realized that, you know, there is a fundamental problem that hasn't been solved through decades, which is we can't even assess skills. We can't measure skills, which is crazy because everybody knows you can't build what you can't measure. But the best existing way, you know, pretty much up to this decade has been a human interview as a way to evaluate someone's skills or multiple choice questions, which as you can guess, provides a very, very weak signal. So 
for the past five years or so, the sharp focus of the company has been to build the best in the world uh, assessment tools and software so that we can make that the cornerstone of achieving the, the grander vision and uh, mission of the company. It's, it's a hugely ambitious goal. And I find it really fascinating just because I talk to a lot of HR people. I talk to a lot of executives. I talk to a lot of startup founders and, and everybody is sort of confused to a certain degree, which is why there's a whole cottage industry of, you know, training and assessments. And so all these tools exist in the first place, but nobody really seems to kind of have a handle on sort of what to do. I mean, everyone, a lot of people seem kind of equally lost. So what you're doing seems to kind of fit perfectly within what everyone wants to ends up accomplishing, you know, what they want to accomplish. Um, I guess the question is like, what, what makes an assessment effective? Because when you talk to hiring managers and so on, some of them just copy paste from lead code, you know, and they think that somehow that's going to give a good insight from the candidate into their skills, you know, and some people have, you know, there was the infamous Google test problems for a while. How many golf balls can you stuff in a 747? And that was going to be an assessment and, and so on. Um, Kind of what's what's your now that you've kind of architected this out, like what's your take on it? Like how do you, what, what truly is an effective assessment? I mean, how does how does that work? Yeah, uh, it's a great question because, like you said, there uh, seems to not be a clear answer, accepted answer in the industry. Even though there is a clear answer, a lot of people are confused about this, right? Uh, it's a few layers, right? The first layer is obviously in simulating whatever it is that you're trying to evaluate. Right, because a skill is an ability to perform something, right? And this carries across not just technical. Yes, in technical roles, like you know, uh, being a front-end engineer could involve writing some HTML, CSS from JavaScript, right? It's an ability to perform something, but this carries across everything. I mean, being a you know basketball player is about being able to dribble, to shoot, to guard. Like, there's every skill has some kind of a corresponding. I can do something. Now, in order for me to say, can you actually do it or not, I need some way to simulate the thing that I want to see if you can do or not, right? In uh, air travel, they call it a flight simulator, right? In a When you're trying to get your driver's license, they call that the driving test. So this is a known concept, but creating true realistic simulations of different skills has been difficult enough where we kind of had to always hold back on like, we'll just ask them some multiple choice questions. And every time someone tries to ask multiple choice questions for hiring purposes, I like to give them the flight simulation or the driving test analogy to say, would you ever trust a pilot who just completed a multiple choice question to fly you somewhere? (laughs) I hope not, right? So first it's the simulation. You've got to be able to simulate the skill. Second, once you have the simulation, you still need the relevant content to go into it. Right, because you can have a flight simulator, but you could be simulating something like you know uh, a war situation in which uh, it's like a dogfight in the air, which is not relevant, right? Like if you're hiring a passenger pilot, uh, just a regular one, you have to simulate situations that are similar to that circumstance of what they're trying to do, and creating all those simulations is not easy, right? So, for example, in our case, for an engineer, uh, because we started focusing sharply on technical domain. Because technical is already complex enough, and there's so many things you can do as one team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scale, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. IDE, like what developers call the integrated development environment, is their cockpit, is their you know flight simulator. Uh, so building that IDE and making it as realistic as possible 
uh, was the first step. But the next step is you still have to create scenarios that go into it that are relevant. So you've mentioned lead code. A lot of the lead code style questions tend to be things that aren't truly relevant to real world scenarios and are meant to be more like brain teasers and things that, sure, someone could do it, but what does that really say about their skill set, right? If I'm simulating it for a pilot, just because this pilot can make rings with a flight simulator in the air, not very interesting. I want to see if they can do takeoff, landing, right? Things that are actually going to happen. And then there's the third layer, which is you've got to be able to evaluate the outcome, right? Let's say you put the simulation, uh, you've got the simulator, you put the simulation in, they went through it, and some data came out of it. Well, is it good or is it bad? And if you have to have humans review every single outcome, you can't scale this, right? Because some of our customers get like tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people applying. And if you have to check one by one every single performance, you're never going to get anywhere. So building some kind of an evaluation system on top of this that can automate the evaluation process that analyzes the data that comes out of the simulation and says, you know, here is a quantified way to look at this, what good, what mediocre, what bad looks like. Hmm. It, it, it seems like it would also be equally good for people on the, the applicant side, because I imagine that in this scenario, let's let's keep the pilot analogy going. If, if, if you're a software developer, network engineer, or whoever is the pilot, and they know that the test is going to be take off, go to cruising altitude, land again, and, you know, and the tech thing would be, you know, I don't know, architect, build, build an app that does X, Y, and Z, they would have an easier time because it seems like the problem facing a lot of applicants these days is they don't know what they're going to be asked. You know, mm-hmm. they're trying to desperately memorize as many brain teasers as they can because they wonder if that's going to be part of the technical. So it seems like this is better for them as well, potentially. Absolutely. And this gets into the learning piece as well because, look, what you want me to be doing right, when preparing for an interview, is studying to get good at the job. Because you are trying to hire me and you hope I'll be good at the job. So ideally, my time is spent not on preparing for an interview, which if the interview is irrelevant to the actual job, right, I'm just wasting my time. Ideally, uh, as a candidate, I should know that, like, look, all I have to do is get good at the job. And again, the same kinds of, like, what's the best way to learn, it still comes back to like practice and for practice unit simulations, right? Mm-hmm. So give me an ability to truly practice for the job. Give me a, an understanding of what does practicing for a job mean? Because that's not clear either for a lot of jobs, right? As a, I just graduated from college, I'm like, I want to be a data scientist. What does that really mean? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of confusion there too. So this having clarity around this is what the job is, this is what being good at that job would look like. And this is a realistic simulation of it provides a lot of clarity on both ends, right? Because as a company, I can say, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And they can do, demonstrate their ability to do this. We're in a good shape. And as a candidate, I can say like, look, I'm going to spend my time just getting good at what I'm supposed to be good at. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes total sense. It also, the other side benefit too, I imagine would be there's so many companies out there. I mean, and granted, this is also coming from the perspective of candidates and tech professionals who get a little bit angry over this. But sometimes companies aren't quite sure how the role is going to evolve. Like they're, they're, they're going out there for a data scientist, but they're not 100% clear on what that data scientist writ is going to look like two or three years down the road. So I imagine that this also would allow companies to focus and say, OK, like 
this person is doing this, which I mean, could be constrictive maybe in some ways, but also, I mean, but, but clarifying hopefully at the same time. It's so interesting because a lot of companies these days are realizing that the future of work is about skills, right? And there's a whole term of skills-based companies, skills-based workforce, where uh, we're trying to graduate from a world of, like we said, you know, uh, we're hiring for a certain job to saying we're hiring for a certain set of skills. Now, the issue, though, is that somehow when people say skills, they understand keywords. And it's shocking because a skill is not a keyword. Right. A skill is a psychological attribute of a human being of being able to perform a certain task. And you can't just think of it as a keyword because keywords are not nearly as representative as you want it to be. To give you an example, right, you look at a job description and it says we're looking for someone who has a skill of JavaScript. What does the skill of JavaScript mean? Right. <laughs> like it maybe I just like, you know, wrote console log hello world, and I'm like, eh. I, I, I run a JavaScript code, so I go to my resume and my LinkedIn and say, I can do JavaScript. Then as a hiring individual, you're like, as a recruiter, you're like, oh, hiring manager said we want uh, JavaScript. So I see the keyword on this person's resume that says JavaScript. Like, you get stuck in this, what about competency level, right? <laughs> competency level is fundamentally important because the spectrum of what being able to perform a certain skill is very, very large. And this is where it becomes a very noisy process, where companies themselves aren't clear. When a hiring manager says, these are the skills we're looking for, without me as a, for example, recruiter being able to say, at what competency level are we talking about? Uh, we're just saying nothing by saying we're looking for a certain skill. It would almost be, in that scenario, it would almost be better for somebody to say, okay, like we're looking for a, a full stack or a front-end developer, web mm -hmm. developer, and that, therefore, you know, almost kind of present a test or a scenario based purely on that and then seeing what skills the person then brings to the party, you know, and, and how they implement the project based, like going more top, rather than going on the keyword level, going on the very top level and then seeing how they potentially work their way through whatever the problem is. I'd say it gets closer to the idea, but like, the, the problem with saying, hey, we're looking for a JavaScript engineer and presenting a scenario is those scenarios can be very different, right? Because uh, there is a JavaScript engineer who can build like medical applications in which the accuracy of input and lack of latency is the most important thing. And then there's JavaScript engineers who build games and social media applications in which the animations and the beauty of it are different skill sets that are more important. That's why you still want to operate at a skill set level, but you want to say, what does being a JavaScript engineer mean in general, right? What does being a front-end engineer mean? What are the skill sets that matter for this specific job? Now, once we've identified what skill sets matter, at what degree of competency does a company need uh, this hire to be, right? Because you don't want them to be an expert at everything, and you don't want them to be an uh, developing level, like very early level at everything, you want them to have certain degrees of competency in certain areas. But most companies don't know this because they haven't analyzed their internal systems as well. They don't, they're not quite sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the recruiters don't know. Yeah, exactly. So you end up saying like, well, just hire me the best front-end engineers and recruiters being like, well, wish I knew what that means. Yeah. 
No, that is problematic. And there are always, I mean, you do hear the complaints, the, the dichotomy between, say, there, there's the people on the actual team who this person will be working with who obviously understand it because they do the job every day versus the third-party recruiter who's been hired to source this role who has the best intentions, obviously, but they're not a tech person and they don't know. And then, yeah, you run and then they're doing that sort of thing where they have the automated resume screener that's based on keywords. Yeah. You know, and, and it just, you get these, it's... What you're proposing, obviously, is really fascinating to me just because it's so much more streamlined, provided people jump on board than the current setup, which is... It's a shared language, right? You have to have a more systematic taxonomy and ontology and a shared language to talk about this. That includes a degree of competency as a key element of it. Because when we just talk in terms of keywords, keywords are not helpful. Uh, I mean, you know... English and human language in general is a very poor form of communication. There's a lot of data lost, right? So like I said, when I'm on the job and I say, hey, I want a front-end engineer, I have an idea of what I'm looking for, right? I, I know I'm. this is the certain degree of competency that I'm shooting for here. Yeah. But it's really hard to communicate in words to that to a uh, recruiting team that is going to go do that for you. Yeah, yeah, no, that, make, that makes total sense. Um, Sort of on, on the flip side of it about, I mean, I wanted to, I, as I mentioned at the top, I, I read your piece in Fast Company where you advocate for the use of generative AI in the context of learning and training and, you know, highly individualized learning tracks, which sort of seems almost like the second part of what you're proposing. On one hand, you have this way to evaluate people and then you have a way for people to get trained so that they can sort of master the evaluations. Um, and I love the idea of generative AI used in a learning context. Um, and I'm hoping that everyone who's listening to this is going to actually go and read the Fast Company piece, which will drop the link, you know, in the, all the associated materials. But um, what's the, just, but for those people, what's the one minute sort of, I hate to boil things down and make them reductive, but sort of like, what's the one minute summation of that? Yeah. Like, how, do you, how do you think this should go in terms of using AI to train people? Absolutely. I, I can't promise to keep it to one minute, but well, I'll try. However long, you know what I mean. Just <laughs> I'll try to give you a summary of it, right? The, the summary of the concept is that, look, uh, we've known for a very long time that education, true educational learning uh, only works if it's personalized. Uh, this is like, we've kind of sort of forgotten it, right? The apprentice apprenticeship model has been known to ancient Greeks. That's how people learn, right? If you wanted to learn a skill, learn a craft, you became an apprentice of someone. And by watching them do it, by doing it yourself and having them correct you, having them help you understand what you do is how you learn. And we know this from coaching, right? Like if you look at every sport, people don't just go and watch a video of how to be a good basketball or a baseball player, right? No, first of all, they practice that skill set practices would build skill, not instruction. Yes, there's some instruction, but 90% of it is practice. That is true for every skill. Uh, so it has to be rooted in practice, but it has to be customized to the individual because every individual has a different starting point, right? Everybody has certain gaps in their knowledge and those gaps come out and they come out in the worst places, right? So you're trying to do something and you get stuck. When you get stuck, uh, someone needs to say, all right, seems like this is what you're missing in terms of both knowledge as well as an intermediary skill that's going to help you make the jump. And what happens more often than not is when you get stuck without that help, without that customization and personalization, you quit because you grew up believing that, you know, 
talent is a gift. And if you can't do it, that means you're just not gifted enough, right? And that's what happens to most people who are trying to learn math in middle school where they, they get stuck because they're obviously missing something in their fundamental understanding. No one helps them. And they just end up believing that I was just never good at math. And every time I hear that, I'm like, no, you probably had a gap in your understanding and no one helped you bridge that gap. And one thing that the article brings up is, again, a well-known research from almost 50 years ago by Benjamin Bloom, who's uh, one of the best-known educational psychologists, who studied uh, one-on-one tutoring-based learning versus traditional classroom instruction. And he showed that you get two standard deviations above educational outcomes when you do uh, one-on-one tutoring versus when you do a standard classroom instructions. On two standard deviations above means pretty much you go from a standard bell curve from where most people were average or failed to almost everybody succeeded at performing well at whatever they learned. Yeah. Well, there's the two sigma problem, right? Most people these days call it the two sigma effect, but he called it the two sigma problem because it was like one-on-one tutoring is not going to be possible at scale. We just can't do it. Then welcome to 2023 with the advances of generative AI, uh, it seems to be within reach. It seems to be within reach that AI could be our tutor, helping us, uh, guiding us as we kind of get stuck and as we have gaps in our knowledge to jump in there and say, you know, here is a custom piece of information, instruction or a practice that's going to help you bridge that gap so you can continue on your learning journey. And also, I mean, at this point, there's so much text-based info online that that can all be digested into the model. And then obviously, hopefully, you know, tailor to whatever your particular learning track is. Um, with that sort of automation and with those models, I guess the one question is traditional education has people who kind of, you know, evaluate lessons for learning and there's all these sort of checks and balances in the way and fact checking and so on. Um so I imagine with this, you'd probably need a similar structure as well implemented in some way. I'm not sure. What do you what, what do you think that would look like in terms of just ensuring that the model is doing what the model is supposed to be doing and that yeah. people are learning what they're supposed to be learning? I mean, that's Absolutely. it. Yeah. And, and here is the key element here, right? Like I'm not proposing that all instruction, which again, instruction should be 10% of the equation. 90% should be practice because like I said, that's how people learn is to doing it themselves, which... I mean, it sounds so obvious, but if you look at every educational uh, provider out there, right, from LinkedIn Learning to Coursera to Udacity, it's just 95% video. Yeah, very true. Uh, do you really expect people to learn? Imagine you were trying to learn how to ride a bike and you watched a video of somebody doing it. Would you expect to get on the bike and be able to make a few feet? You yeah. would Right. I mean, there's the multiple choice questions, too, in between the videos. And that's also you run the same problem. We were talking about that before. Yeah, exactly. So uh, practice is central to this. And for practice, you need a simulation. But then on top of that, uh, to go back to your question of like, look, how do we ensure that this is quality? Content itself needs to be created with humans. And that's not the problem. We can create content. We can create instructional content. We can create practice content. It's a one time and done thing. The issue is that as a learner, when I start engaging with it, no matter what, I get stuck at some point, right? Because if it's too easy, so I don't get stuck, it'll just be boring for me. And game designers have known this for decades, right? If it's too easy, people get bored. If it's too hard, people get stuck. 
So the perfect way to keep engagement going, which is true for games and it's true for learning, is to find what's called the flow zone, right? Things that are just at the edge of what you can do uh, are just hard enough, but not too hard, so you keep engaged. But if you design something that way, people get stuck because they have gaps in their knowledge. And this is way, this is where an AI tutor becomes powerful because a generative AI can hop in there and help bridge that gap. But at the same time, like you said, you can't just say, okay, we're just going to trust the generative AI to get this right. It's the content that's built around it and the checks and balances that are built around it that are meant to ensure that whatever instruction, whatever customized instruction is given is based on a human-created content that is just purely customizing and feeding to you versus trying to come up with instruction on its own. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. How, I mean, where do you think we are now in terms of the execution of that vision? And like how long, I mean, you know, granted, nobody, I mean, the, the rise of AI in the past year or so has just demonstrated that nobody, you know, it's very hard to kind of pin dates or timelines on anything. But how long do you think it's, is it going to take for something like this really to come online for people? I mean, do you think this is an imminent thing? Do you think this is like a decade out thing? I mean, what's your, what's your take? I think, uh, I think it's what happened is, for pretty much entire history of humanity, we didn't have the technology to make this possible, right? Hence why two sigma not effect, the two sigma problem for 50 years has been known of, and educational psychologists have been looking for workarounds for this, right? Because we just purely didn't have the technology. Uh, with March of this year, right, which is crazy, it's just a few months ago, we had GPT-4, which was the technological unlock we needed. Right. It's like it's like the internal combustion engine equivalent of us getting cars. Now, it took like decades between internal combustion engine being made and the Model T from Ford rolling out, hoping this one doesn't take that long. Right. It's possible that it will take a decade between like, okay, we found the missing piece and now we have this ability to build something fantastic. I'm hoping that it takes less than three years, maybe even a year to, you know, maybe sometime in 2024, we will start to wake up to a reality in which education is changing. Now, obviously, there is also creating amazing products that change the world doesn't start without, you know, humans accepting it, using it and finding value in it. Education is one of those things that everybody has a sweet spot for it, right? Because A, it makes us feel more self-actualized when we learn. And B, uh, skills gaps are killing Fortune 500s. Uh, every Fortune 500 C-level you talk to is like, look, the faster technology moves, the more new types of skills are getting created and the wider the skills gap. And technology is only accelerating, which means that we're constantly in this pressure of like, okay, generative AI. No one talked about it last year. Nowadays, it's on the lips of every Fortune 500 CEO. It's an obsession. Yeah, it's a complete it's obsession. It's going to keep happening because technology for hundreds of years has been accelerating. Ever since we invented the wheel, we've just done more in 100 years than we've done in 1,000 years preceding that. That's going to keep happening. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, the, the Wright brothers was 1912, 1910, when, whenever Kitty Hawk goes. But then you think that it, was, it only took... 50 years to, yeah. for, for space flight and so on. Um, 
So yeah, no, I mean, in terms of the acceleration, I mean, granted, it's it's probably not going to be 50 years before we start to see these AI dividends, but you know, you do see like these kind of the acceleration curves go up. Um, how do you think? I mean, in terms of training and assessments and everything, how do you think generative AI is going to impact like what you're doing directly in terms of in terms of that whole realm of things? Because you can see it goes from education and AI to evaluation and AI or assessment and AI. I mean, what's the impact for you? Absolutely, and like I mentioned in the beginning, our mission has always been to discover and develop the skills that will shape the future. So the technological unlock of AI has been a tremendous piece for us because uh, even for assessments, content has been a massive bottleneck, right? Like I said, we have the best-in-class simulation, but creating all the scenarios that go into that simulation is still a lot of work. And now uh, we can use generative AI to do it 100 times faster. Not to have generative AI do it, right? But to have it accelerate different processes, such as the review of what gets created, such as the creating initial drafts uh, from existing stuff, because you also need variations. You can't just have one version be done, right? And all of these things have been a massive bottleneck for us to be able to scale uh, evaluating skills, evaluating skills at a higher precision, because when you, when you get to evaluating skills in learning context, your precision has to be high. Because you need to keep people in the flow zone. Keeping people in the flow zone means constantly having an understanding of their skill set. So you can match them with learning content that's highly relevant to where they're at. And uh, the unlock and advances of especially the large language models is going to make uh, us be able to get to places that I thought we would take us at least five years before we can go there. It's amazing. That's gonna be great to see that that pan out in that way and that kind of acceleration is very exciting. It's been it's been a crazy year with the economy and wars everywhere, but it's it's kind of the modern reality, right? Where on one side you've got some of the I think ten years from now we'll look back and say, you know, these advances in AI have been transformational, similar to Wright Brothers and uh, internal combustion engine, where I'm sure at the time they were like, oh, whatever, somebody flew, somebody made an engine that. Uh, burn stuff inside. Uh, but in retrospect, you see how big of an effect they had. But at the same time, a lot of those inventions were also made at a time where the world was chaos. So it's that, you know, duality that we have to exist in and uh, comprehend and move forward the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm excited to see where it goes. I mean, despite all, all the chaos and everything else. So yeah, cool. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Um, the uh, yeah no I'm really I'm really excited about um, everything AI. It just seems like I mean there's there's all these new use cases developing and stuff like that. I'm just yeah it's fascinating. Um, cool yeah no thank you for the time. I really appreciate this. This is really fun and um, I, I I think what you're doing is fascinating because like I said there's a ton of chaos out there with regard to hiring and assessments and training and stuff like that. And I think that when you have a clear vision as you do, I think that it's it's helping obviously to get some clarity for everybody and that, you know, makes for less chaos and, and happier right. people. So that's great. Surprisingly, the innovation is not about choice. It's more about constraints, right? But you have to pick those constraints carefully. I think it's so, a great way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, because there's always way too many options and way too many ways you can go. And you have to choose what you believe the right path to be and pursue it relentlessly. Yeah, that's true. And that's it, folks. It's always interesting to talk with someone like Tigran who thinks so deeply about the hiring process. Here's some quick takeaways from our chat. First, 
Anyone who's hiring tech professionals has to think about the skills as more than just keywords on a resume. Tech professionals must be truly competent in the skills, which means knowing how that skill, whether it's a programming language, knowledge of a framework, or something else, interacts with other elements throughout a tech stack and ultimately yields results. Second, it's important for the hiring process to actually simulate the job itself. It's not enough to ask brain teasers or math problems copied off another website. You want to see how the candidate would handle the concepts and tools involved in the job itself. Think about that if you're currently thinking through how to create a great hiring process. Third, education works best when it's personalized. AI could indeed help us create personalized learning tracks for all kinds of students. While that might raise some questions about the accuracy of an AI and what it's teaching people, you could presumably sidestep that through a system of checks, balances, and evaluations. And that's it, folks. Thanks for listening in. Covered a whole lot of other topics during the episode, of course, so give it a re-listen if there was something you missed. We'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles. And for tech pros, the best place to grow your tech career.